Well, welcome back. I think we're live. Thanks for being here on the morning brushback. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. I am joined here by my other co-host, Bobby Stevens. Robert, how you doing? Good. Back in the studio car. Back in the studio car. You're stealing Dunkin' Donuts sweet Wi-Fi? Dunkin' Donuts has strong Wi-Fi for anyone looking to work from their car. It's got really strong Wi-Fi. And we've got an awesome... All right, Bobby, get over it. All right, we're over your Wi-Fi. We've got a great guest today. Dusty Napoliano is uh, is here from Northwestern Baseball. How are you, sir? Good. It's actually Napoleon, so, you oh, know. Oh, sorry on, about that. Man. What did it's, I say? Hey, Napoleano, which, hey, you know, oh. you want to throw an extra vowel on the end. I am Italian, so it's okay. Damn. <laughs> uh, I'm a terrible, I'm a terrible host. Very nah, sorry, sir. Nah, I'm no, I'm good, man. But, but you're giving away Bobby's secrets with stealing the Dunkin' Donuts Wi-Fi, so. Is there any, like, can you smell it? Does it have, like, a, do they, like, infuse it with any kind of, like, maple or anything? You know, like a glaze? Good. It's good people watching for anyone that's interested. There's no, there's been no street fest this year. There's been no, like, you haven't been able to sit at the park and just watch the people walk by. Dunkin' Donuts, and it's, like, attached to a gas station. Solid people watching for the last 20 minutes <laughs> I've been here. Is Dunkin' Donuts, the like, the Walmart of the craft coffee world? Uh, wait, wait, it's yeah. gotta be right. It's gotta be the most generic coffee place. Maybe Seven Eleven. That's not a coffee place, though. Like you that's could, where people get. Who, who would you put in this conversation, Dusty? Of like the standard, like the big three or four coffee places. There's Starbucks and Dunkin'. I mean, obviously, Starbucks, like, Dunkin'. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's shoot, man. That's that's the only ones I kind of see around. I'm not a big coffee guy, but uh, I think in, in Chicago, I don't know if it's national, but is there Pete? Pete's is, is kind of big in Chicago. That's true. Pete's, yep. Pete's is yeah, big I like here. Pete's coffee. Yeah. Well, what did so you you played pro ball? You were uh, drafted by the Oakland Athletics. If you, you're not a big coffee guy, what did you do in your five o'clock after BP to to get going? What Shoot, was your man. What was your caffeination of choice? Nothing. And well, I was back in the day where the pre workout was kind of kicking in, right? Like, so you wake up in the morning. <laughs> yeah. You wake up in the morning and then uh, go work out. And then after BP, it was usually a shower with a scoop of NO Explode back in the day. <laughs> I know you guys remember that. So <laughs> I actually never took it. I never, I've actually never taken pre-workout in my life. I don't know why. I'm not like, I think it's a little weird, especially when younger kids are taking it. Like when 15-year-olds are taking it, I'm like, you're doing life wrong. You don't need that. Like yeah. if you need that to get through a workout now, good luck when you're 28 and like all of your joints are swollen, hurting and yeah, that came, I mean, that, that kind of popped up when, when we were in college and mm-hmm. sophomore, junior, senior year, that was kind of, that was kind of yeah. the, the thing to do. And then in pro ball, it was, uh, it was all legal. So, you know, everyone was jumping on board. <laughs> well, with those things being quote unquote, all legal, I mean, guys got popped for stuff every once in a while in college and pro ball, and they blamed it on those a lot of times. Right. I mean, who knows? There's like cocaine and some of these crazy pre-workouts that just because the fda doesn't regulate them so they could throw whatever they want in there and yeah like no one really knows it's kind of scary yeah. i remember i was in it was 2010 we were in uh in double a in midland and we we're playing i believe the astros maybe or, or somebody and uh there was like eight or nine guys who tested positive for something and it was they were all taking the new one the new pre-workout mm-hmm. that came out that was the jack 3d at the time. Oh, that's right. I remember that one too. Yeah. So that was a big one that guys were starting to test positive for. 
eight or eight or nine guys is not a small amount of guys. Not a small no, amount of guys. No. That's like, oh man, we need like more players to like have a team now. <laughs> yeah. no it's doubt. almost better. It's almost better that that many guys. At least you know it's like okay, there's definitely something tainted. That's true. Like, yeah. Unless just the one guy you have that's like, I swear I didn't take anything bad. It's like, come on, guy. The the Mary Kay steroid rep visited the yeah. team. <laughs> the team. They all, they all went home with something, right? Um, so, Dusty, how long have you been with Northwestern, and what's the current state of of your program right now? Yeah, so just finished uh, abbreviated year five, right in in twenty twenty. Um, so yeah, we uh, uh, was hired in, in the summer of twenty fifteen with uh, head coach Spencer Allen, um, who's kind of been all over, but uh, he was hired from Illinois when he was the hitting coach there, and they had their their fifty one season. Um, so we've been there for five years, and. You know, I, I really believe our program is is on the uprise. You know, this past year, um, you know, we, we took two out of three from South Carolina on the road. Um, so, you know, we were, we were right around 500 when the season ended. And um, with 2017, we, we made it to the Big Ten Championship and, and the Big Ten Tournament. So, um, you know, I definitely think we're, we're trending in the right direction. Well, you guys have a really nice facility. I, I, my team's played up there a couple years in a row for mm-hmm. our – summer tournament circuit and just like a really nice cool place to play does anyone ever put one up one of that i gotta i can't see if i can remember the architecture your your football because i've been in the football so for those of you haven't been northwestern's field it's it's beautiful it's got a nice ballpark it's uh brand new turf it's got good bullpens like it's really like you guys did a great job with it um and then you have your football facility like your indoor is like a half field Mm -hmm. or is it a full field i can't remember yeah, so probably when when you were there, that was the indoor football, um, mm-hmm. and then we had our cages in that in the annex, as we call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, in the last uh, year and a half, they totally remodeled that. So when football opened up their brand new facility on campus, um, which is the best in the country, they gutted the whole old indoor football and they turned it into um, you know half of it is a basketball volleyball facility, and the other oh. half is actually all turf for baseball and softball. So Oh, wow. We have, yeah, so we have a good, you know, uh, 40-yard turf area, full infield. And then connected to that where our cages were, we have five permanent cages, 80 feet long, 20 feet wide, 20 feet high. So it's, uh, and we, we got in there in, you know, November a little bit. And then January, February, we got the train there. Um, and then obviously what happened with, with COVID. But um, it's, it's with, with everything that we have there, with the weight room there and, and you know, the hydrotherapy and, um, the field and locker room, like, I mean, it's a, it's a top, top facility for sure, at least in the Midwest. Yeah. And that's really crucial. Beautiful. Yeah. And they, the AD, I know the AD had a lot to do with it. So the AD at Northwestern, Jim mm-hmm. Phillips was the AD at NIU when I was there and he just totally revamped the whole, the whole way everyone looked at athletics, fundraising facilities. Like if it wasn't going to be top of the line, then it wasn't worth doing. So NIU's got an unbelievable facility now. That new Northwestern football facility is unbelievable. I mean, it's right on the water. It's I don't, like you said, you don't know if you can find much better than that uh, yeah, anywhere, they, let alone the Midwest. Yeah, they did a really good job just with the, how they planned it out too. Where you know the cafeteria for the student athletes are is right next to academic services, right? So just the flow of that building. I know Pat Fitzgerald had a big part of that, but um, they really did a good job with that facility. So let's talk a little bit about being a, a, a crappy weather college because this is a major – so like one of the kids – I mean, in my academy, we had a lot of kids go a lot of places, obviously. One of them went to South Dakota State, 
Zach, mm-hmm. I'm sure you're not listening, but um, weird decision. But when kids choose to go north, like their summer schedule is very different and, and they kind of need to understand that there's a lot of factors, including like the facilities that really matter. Like for you guys having a lot of indoor space, that's a really important thing. Like at my college, uh, UMBC, we didn't have a ton of indoor space. We had to share like gym space and all this stuff. And they've upgraded as well. They have great facilities now. But that should be like a big part of a recruit's decision, potentially, if they have a lot of options. Because, I mean, well, let, me, let me phrase it this way. So what, what should recruits know about playing in a rough weather college? Like, how is that going to affect their spring schedule, their travel, all that sort of stuff? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, first, like growing up with it, like growing up with the weather, like, you know, by the time I got through college at Iowa, it was like, I, I, I never thought about it. It was just kind of, it's, it's just what you did, right? Like you played spring baseball with snow flurries coming down every once in a while, right? Like it was just kind of what it is. Um, you know, but I, but I think, uh, you know, just talking to recruits about, you know, playing in Chicago, um, you know, the first thing is, is like you, ha- you have to have a good indoor facility in order to, to develop. You got to mm-hmm. have access to cages and, and uh, have an area where you can, you know, work on your craft and work on your skills. So, you know, that, that's kind of the first thing. And we have that at Northwestern. Um, you know, I think, I think the, the second thing is just to educate them and, and don't hide behind it. Right. Like we, when we, we recruit coast to coast and when we have a ton of California kids and kids from Texas and we just don't hide it. It's, it's cause it is what it is, right? Like we're going to play our first four weekends on the road, um, in the spring and there's going to be a lot of travel, which is fun. Yeah. Go to and, cool, cool, yeah cool, and that's cool. what I was kind of getting at. Yeah. So you yeah, guys, so full month, huh? That's cool. That is fun. You're right it's fun. It goes by fast. Right. But, um, mm-hmm. in the first four weekends are on the road and then you, you hope to potentially mix in a, a midweek game somewhere in there. Um, you know, usually our, our, our March 2nd midweek game with UIC is, is hit or miss. It's a coin flip, but, uh, yeah. you know, it, it is what it is. And so we, we just don't hide behind the weather, you know? And then I think once we start to really dive into it with recruits, it's like, you know, Hey, you look at major league baseball, right. A normal season, you know, they're, they're playing baseball in Chicago in, in April. And so um, it is what it is. And we're just going to be upfront about it. And, and we have a great indoor to, to develop. Yeah. Well, and one of the reasons I think that's especially relevant is because, I mean, what, what day did you open up this year? Was it February? What? Yeah, 15th. Yeah, we were in Arizona. That, like that's, that's the fundamental difference, right? Like pro ball. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, your opening day was April 20th, probably ish. Right. No doubt. So yep. huge difference. And like for, I guess one of the, things I want people to consider is so like for my alma mater we were kind of fringe like Maryland's cold like everywhere's cold in February right but <laughs> we weren't cold enough like Chicago where we had to play south so we just had to suck it up and play 30 degrees and flurries and 15 yeah. degree winds whereas you almost kind of want to go so far south where it's like there's zero chance we're going to play anywhere locally in February and early March so we have to go sure. south so like you guys are spending your first four weeks on the road, which is like you said, it's super fun. Like I, I think it's cool to have a nice home ballpark, but it's also yeah. one of the experiences. I mean, where are some of the places that you got to play in college and in pro ball that were pretty special to you? Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, we got to go to, um, Fresno like the year before they won the national championship. So we played them on our spring break trip, we got to go to Fresno, do a little tournament with Dallas Baptist there. So that was, that's cool. Yeah, that yeah, that was fun. Um, you know, we usually kind of do the the Florida trip, the the Bradenton one, where everybody does. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, you know, and then just playing with the A's down in Midland, Texas, the the, the Texas League and Double A was was a good experience. It's a so, huge draw, though, if, as a recruit, yeah. if you can, if you're going to be going to Northwestern and you could say, hey, we're going to Arizona this week, then next week we go to Florida, then we have our spring trip down in Texas, or yeah. that's, I mean, that's part of the recruiting, uh, especially for warm weather states. I mean, I went to Northern Illinois and my first trip was Arizona State, and that was part of this, you know. Everybody knows their schedule a few years in advance, it seems like now, mm-hmm. if not mm-hmm. three, four years in advance, just with home and home and all that stuff with everybody um, when you when you trade off home series. So you have a good idea where you're going to go when you're recruiting a, a junior in high school or even a sophomore, essentially. That's a good selling point. I mean, there's if you've got a school that's going to Arizona State and Florida and, and California as opposed to, well, our spring trips in St. Louis. Okay, well, I don't know. I've been to St. Louis. I don't want to. I don't need to go back. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Dusty, what's your favorite city? So, if you had to, if you could like start a college baseball program, maybe, maybe I don't. I don't want to phrase that because I don't want to get you in trouble. But <laughs> if you were to travel and you could pick any any city to, to your team is going to fly and spend a three day weekend with, what would be your favorite city to do that in? That's a good question. Um, you know, I'm actually going to go uh, where I've spent two summers in pro ball, and I'm going to go to Vancouver. So I know I know it's in Canada, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, playing in the Northwest League, it was a short season ball. I got to spend a full summer there and then half a summer. Vancouver, Canada, is just, it, it's unbelievable in, in summer. But the weather's perfect. Um, off days, you go up to Whistler, you know, a couple hours away. And, um, you know, that's, uh, that's one of the cities that I just really, really enjoyed playing in, had a great host family and just. You know, everything they were building for the Olympics when I was up there too. So the, the city yeah. was just growing, and I just I just loved it up there, up in the Northwest. Yeah, the the travel is definitely one of the cool parts about, and one of the under talked about parts I think of college baseball and pro baseball, and I think college baseball a little more so than pro ball because you know in pro ball it's just like you have your circuit, and a lot of those towns aren't like they're they're not most of them are not Vancouver, right? Yeah, <laughs> so. right, no doubt. <laughs> so. No doubt. But it is pretty fun where every year you're like, hey, you might go to South Carolina and play against them. And yeah. like you said, take two or three from them, then go to Fresno. Like, there's a lot of really cool places you can go and actually see a bit of the country, which is, which is pretty fun. Yeah, and we, and we talk about it as a staff when, when Coach Allen's uh, working on the schedule. Like, where do we want to go? And then we also you know, we t- we like to talk about uh, trying to reward some of our kids. So, you know, we need to get out to the West Coast with so many California guys and we like to start our year in Arizona. We have a great relationship with the Cubs and White Sox that we kind of alternate at their facilities. Um, that's what we've done the last that's four cool. years. So yeah, it's, it's been awesome. So um, yeah, man, just, just traveling the country, playing baseball is n- nothing better than, you know? Yeah. I'm sure there's a- teams in the big 10 yeah. that love coming to Chicago to play. I, I do have one gripe with you with Northwestern's field and there's no lights. Mm. They're really Hurts the summer ball circuit because I want to play <laughs> some night games in at Northwestern, and we have to stop at like eight o'clock at night. I mean, it's not early, obviously, but yeah, no. Work. I'll call Jim Phillips. We'll get we'll get that taken yeah. care of for you guys. No, I appreciate it. No, it's uh, you know, ho- hopefully, hopefully, it's coming uh, down the road. You know, we uh, we got the field, we got the scoreboard, we got everything there, and you know, obviously, the lights would be nice, but um, you know, we make it work with with, with what we have. So what's your favorite uh, visiting park to visit in the Big Ten? So obviously some big campuses. You guys mm-hmm. uh, maybe even natural rivalry rivalry with U of I in the in-state yeah. uh, Big Ten school. But what's your favorite What's your favorite place to go on the road? Are the fans get crazy anywhere? 
Nebraska is always fun, right? Like we, we play in Nebraska and they draw well. Um, it's a beautiful field. Yeah. Yeah. They do a good job. Uh, so I've been here for five years and we were actually supposed to finally go there. Um, but, uh, university of Iowa where I played, right. We, we haven't played at Iowa yet. So, um, hmm. I was like, I was looking forward to that this year. They, they've come to us a couple of times. We haven't played there yet. Um, so I'm going to say Iowa just cause I'm an alum, but, uh, you know, I- Indiana, you know, with, uh, with their field set up there is, is, is good as well. And, um, good memories there from the 2017 big 10 tournament for sure. So um, on, on your bio here, it says you led the Big Ten in walks as a college player. So one of the things Bobby and I got into with uh, one of our hitting gurus was the importance of the swing versus the importance of play discipline. And one of my theses in this thesis was that you could give Barry Bonds a crappier swing and he's still pretty much Barry Bonds like mm-hmm. 99% Barry Bonds, because what made Barry Bonds really special was his visual acuity, his pitch selection, his play discipline, et cetera, et cetera. He also had a great swing, but um, where do you fall on this debate? I mean, how important, mm-hmm. obviously both are important. Like we can just like throw that out there. Like we know that, but how important is play discipline? Yeah, it's huge. Well, first, I think both of you guys did a great job being, uh, uh, handling that that conversation when you guys had those guys <laughs> on, so I'm just gonna, I'm just, I'm just going to tell you that um, you know I, I I think there's there's kind of two thoughts right like I think there are you know kind of going back to that that there's swing coaches and there's hitting coaches right so I think guys are can really really teach the swing um, from mechanical aspect right but do they talk about approach do they talk about hitting and then the the, the hitting coaches right it's like um, you know, you talk about approach and what this guy's trying to do to set you up. So I think my job at the college level, and what I try to do is, is you got to be a hybrid of both. Like, I don't think you can fall into, you know, one bucket and say, I'm just a, a swing coach and I'm just going to teach mechanics and we're going to throw approach away. Or I, and I don't think you can just be a, you know, a, a hitting coach and just say, we're just going to teach approach and, and mechanics are out the window, right? Just compete. Like, I think there's got to be a hybrid of both. So um, obviously the hardest thing, uh, to teach, I think once you start to, to get up in levels is plate discipline, right? And, and swinging at strikes, right? You're only good at, at the pitches. Uh, you're only as good as the, uh, the pitches that, that you swing at. And so yeah. my, my, my hitting coach um, in college was Brian Brownlee. Uh, so I know, I know Bobby knows a little bit. and He's listening right now. He just texted me. Yeah, he, he, he just called me, which I was like, come on. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, and, and I think he, he is a light really went on for me. And I kind of, I felt like I always had a good plate discipline, but he told me my junior year when I, you know, led the big 10 and walks was, you know, if you want to hit for an high average, you, we, we got to cut the swings down and we got to walk more. And it's like, okay. And it just kind of clicked with me. And, you know, um, obviously when I, when I was drafted by the A's, it wasn't a coincidence and, and they really liked that. You know, that was kind of yeah money ball era type, you know, 2007. Mm-hmm. So, um, Play discipline is huge. It, it, it's huge, and, and you really got to have a plan, have an approach. But you also have a good swing with mechanics to back it up. So one of the things that people were in my ear about, and I was like, I'm just an innocent bystander. I'm just trying to make good conversation. They're like, well, a better swing gives you better play discipline. And, of course, there's some truth to that, right? Like we all know the 13-year-old who's just got to start ambushing so early because mm-hmm. his bat's super slow and his swing's super long and he's on his front foot. He's got, he's got less time 
to react because he's got to start sooner. We get that. Mm -hmm. You're throwing 105. Like that's like the norm these days, <laughs> you know, you have less plate discipline because you have to decide sooner and you're going to make more bad decisions. But how important actually do you think the swing is? Cause like when we get to college and this was part of my frustration with that conversation is like, we're talking about big leaguers here, right? Like we're not talking about like comparing Barry Bonds, swing to Johnny, you know, Johnny trash swing and, you know, <laughs> in college, we're comparing Barry Bonds to an right. average big leaguer. Like these are the most special hitters on the, in the world, they're just not quite as good as him. So at, at like higher levels, like D1's a really high level. All guys have pretty decent swings, right? Yeah. Um, so do you feel like there's a big enough variance between two Division One starters where the swing is really making up the difference in their play discipline? When you say starters, you mean like guys on the mound? Like I mean, no, I mean, I meant like guys are in the lineup. Guys are in the lineup. Yeah, yeah. Um, Man, I, I, that's another good question. I think I think it's a, it's again it's a hybrid of of a little bit of both. It's like you you have to you know for starters like you know especially at our level right like we're not going to recruit kids at least at Northwest we're not going to recruit kids with bad swings and say hey I'm going to try to fix it right mm -hmm. like like we we want to find kids who you know with with myself and, and Coach Allen that that kind of fit the mold of, of what we're looking for and then I think like once you, you start to use like ton of technology, right? We have every piece of technology there is to have at Northwestern with KVest and Blast and TrackMan. And, you know, I think you use those tools to, okay, the swing is good, right? Sequence, mm -hmm. right? He's where he's loading properly. He's where he needs to be. Right. And then I think like, that's just as important as the plate discipline part of it. Right. Because I think they go hand in hand. So, um, but you got to use the technology, um, you know, it's, it's there for it. Um, there's people who worked really hard on developing those things to, Hey, we're going to develop this guy this way. And technology is going to show us, Hey, is this time to contact, right? Using blast motion. Is it really, is it really long, right? Is, is it, is it over 0.15 where, yeah, he's going to have to start earlier in order to make contact or is it super quick with super plus bat speed and, and he can make a decision late. So, Again, like I know it didn't really give you an answer, but it's kind of uh, it's going to be a little bit of both. And I think the separator, right, is the guys who can make adjustments, right? The adjustability can hit off speed pitches. So that's going to go back to swing, but it's also going to go back to, to decision making too. Mm -hmm. Bobby, what do you what do you got? It's so hard to like. It's so hard to change a kid, especially when you get to like the Division One level. That's so successful at what he does but you're watching him and then you do video and it's, it's like, that is not an orthodox swing. Like you can clearly see some mechanical flaws in it, but at what point are you, are you hurting him to try and help him? Where, I mean, if I played with a kid in college who was, you probably wouldn't teach his swing, but he's the all time hits leader at NIU. Like he just, he kind of like threw himself at the, at the ball a little bit, but he had great hand eye coordination, always barreled the ball, big first baseman, like six, three, but he didn't hit for power. Like he wasn't a pull side power guy. He was a left center gap doubles guy. And to get drafted, everyone naturally said, like you play first base, you got to hit home runs. Like we need you to hit 20 home runs. And that just wasn't his swing. And he probably could have changed and suffered a little bit in the beginning and figured it out. But are you going to change a guy that's hitting 380 in college and slugging, you know, over 500? I mean, it's, it's hard. And it's like, you know, like you said, you got to blend. I think I tried to get Jeff and uh, Richard at the end of that podcast to 
Let's not mention them too much. By name. Let's, let's stay to get, focused on I tried to get our Dusty. hitting guys but to, yeah, yeah. to talk. Okay, there's an overlap here. Like, you can't just be a swing coach in pro ball. You can't just be a mechanics guy or you just or you can't be just a approach guy. Like, you have to blend at some point. Because if a guy's problem is mechanics, you should be able to identify it if you're a pro hitting coach or even a college hitting coach for that matter. And most 99% of coaches are a blend. Like, I don't know any college hitting coaches that are strictly mechanics that cannot talk approach to their hitters. I'm not sure what good they would be during a game if you could only talk mechanics and vice versa. If you're in the cage and a kid is struggling bad and you can't necessarily identify something he's doing wrong that he never used to do, you're probably no good to that kid either. You're not, you're not going to be able yeah. to help him. So there is an overlap. There's, there's a hundred percent a blend of, of both swing coach and hit and you know, approach coach or philosophy, whatever you want to call it. I just don't know when we get into like the Twitter hitting discussions, if anybody cares because everyone tries to, to carve out their niche to where they can get X amount of followers to make X amount of dollars to do what, I mean, <laughs> it's a different game. It's just different. It's a different animal when you're talking online coaching. Well, it's funny trying to explain away everything into one bucket or the other. So for example, um, one of my kids who's actually back in Chicago, he's playing for Rhino baseball. He's a pitcher. Um, his mom sent me his uh, prep baseball video from he was playing in one of like the futures games or whatever you call them, underclass games. So it was like the center field yeah. view of him pitching one half inning. And he's like a pound the strike zone kind of kid, like a real natural good strike thrower. And he walks his first batter on like four pitches. Actually, I think he hit him in the first pitch and then he like they kept him in there. Um, just really wild in the first two batters. And for me watching it, I was like, oh, he's just nervous. Like, he's pushing the ball. He's thinking a little bit. He's just like, clearly, you can't really tell he's nervous, but you can tell he's nervous, right? And it would be really easy to explain away that as like, oh, you're doing this or you're doing this or you're doing like it. Like, the nervousness is the reason he was having mechanical, like he was push shoving the ball a little bit and he's an off, right? So it wasn't that, like talking about his mechanics is like completely irrelevant in that moment. It's just like, hey, you're just nervous. Relax. Just stop, you know. And there's also an, often not a way to talk him out of it because there was like, he knew he was on sort of TV. It was like a sort of big event. There were like scouts behind him. There's no way to talk him out of it. It's just like, hey, just throw the crap out of the ball, man. And he settled down after his third hitter, right? And that's normal. But you can't explain. If you try to explain that as your mechanics are off, you're just missing the point. Um, so, yeah. So, Dusty, here's a question that I'm interested in is, when you get guys, so Bobby, that was a good um, example. You said like a pro, like a not prototypical first baseman guy who doesn't hit home runs, but he's a really good hitter. Dusty, is that like when you get guys in your program, do you try to make them fit that mold? So if you had a guy like that, would you be saying, "Hey, let's see if we can get thirteen home runs out of you"? Like, let's try to tweak your swing to get some of that pop. Like, we know you can make contact. Let's do this. Let's do that. Do you try to get guys into those molds that will get them into pro ball? Yeah, I think I think it, it I think there becomes a point, right, where that discussion will happen. Um, but I think right, right, like early in his career, like that dude needs to prove that he can handle college pitching, right? So if he's hitting three fifty, three eighty, right, like stupid numbers, um, I think that conversation probably needs to start happening um when he goes out to summer ball, right? Like summer ball's mm -hmm. a great time to start working on things and you know, so like a guy like that, it'd be like, hey, like we, we want you to start pulling some more balls. So, you know, hey, 
get your knock in your first two ABs. And then the last two ABs, it's like hey, in, in, in summer ball, right? I'm talking when mm-hmm. you're trying to develop and it's like, Hey, let's start working on something. Let's start trying to ambush fastballs to the pull side. So I think that conversation happens when you have a guy with, that has a lot of success, who knows how to hit, um, whose swing is good. And there might have to be some tweaks. Right. And, and if he comes to us and he's like, I, I want to play professional baseball. Like, I'm like, this is my goal. It's like, okay, well, we're going to have to do some things, but also on the same point, like, you know, you got to, you know, um, have the success that, that, that you've had too, but with adding different layer and guys who can make that jump and make that adjustment from year to year, like those are the special players for sure. So we've, got that a, standard? we've got a Ryan Brownlee chime in, uh, okay. anecdote Uh-oh. about your playing career. Uh-oh. Uh, he said the conversation with you was that you were going to put the ball in play if you swung. So you needed to make sure that if you swung, it was something you could drive. He said you were not a good runner. So True. contact wasn't good for you. Uh, but the byproduct of everything was that you walked more, which yeah. gave you, you know, essentially forcing yourself to swing at things you could drive gave you better plate discipline because, like I said, you weren't gonna you weren't gonna beat out infield singles or not that, no. which is another thing. Like no. nobody's beating out any infield singles in when you get to even Division One baseball. I mean, you maybe once every series, like you get a jam job and the guy's fast, but. Plays are made at those higher levels, like especially at pro ball. Like you're not a slap and run in the infield type guy. Like there are, it's not a thing. So you really have to be able to drive the ball into, at least through the infield or into the gaps. Yeah, no but doubt. And that was is that. Yeah. Do you remember this conversation? Yeah, no, I I do. And he, I remember he he brought me up after my sophomore year and was like, like you make too much contact. At the end of the year, I was like, what do you? What I make too much contact, <laughs> you know? And he just said like. You know, and they had data and stuff, and it was just like, well, when you swing, you put the ball in play. So you really have to be smart about the pitches that you swing at. And I think my plate discipline was already good, but, like, it just clicked with me that, okay, like, I really need to focus in on, like, what pitch I'm looking for and hunt it out. And if it's not there, less than two strikes, I'm going to take it. Yeah. Uh, it's something I really worked on, and, and it, it paid off. So, um, and I would say, Bobby, to your point, too, like, when I got to Pro Bowl, that was probably one of the biggest things besides the the bullpen arms, right? Like bullpen arms in college, like they're going to be good. Um, but each team has a couple guys. When you get to Pro Bowl, it's like <laughs> they're bringing out bullpen guys who are just ridiculous, who are number one starters in college. And um, you're just facing those guys over and over. So, like, that was a big thing. And then just, like, the outfielders. I remember hitting a couple balls in the gap that, like, off the bat, you're like, okay, yeah, I know it was a wood bat, but it's like that's a base hit. And it's like the guy's catching it like standing up <laughs> right so like those were the two big adjustments were the bullpen arms and pro ball and then just the outfielders just you really really had a the hit balls you know and gaps and with the right spin and exit velo all that stuff to to get doubles actually base hits. yeah that's interesting that you brought up making too much contact because that you definitely become aware of that as a pitcher where i remember one of our alma mater who made to the major leagues made to the major leagues he came back and and talked to guys and one of his sentiments was that he learned over time that he didn't want guys to swing and miss at all sorts of pitches like there were lots Mm -hmm. of pitches that would he made it he was like dang i wish you hadn't swung and missed at that or i wish you hadn't taken it i wish you'd put that in play because i know if you do you're grounding out to second base right and as pitchers we know that too it's like i i throw pitches lots of times hoping that you put this in play. Because if you do, like, you're going to be out 9.5 out of 10 times probably, right? Like a cutter on the outside corner or something like that. Like you're not going to get a hit on that unless you're lucky. So that makes sense. Whereas lots of guys, like you said, it's probably 
almost helpful to them to whiff on some of those and only make contact when they can actually hit it hard. Yeah. And then I think we've, we've all been there too, when you're in the box and you get fooled by pitch less than two strikes and you like slow your swing down to make mm-hmm. contact. Like I definitely did that freshman, sophomore year, just not kind of just by habit. Right. And I really had to like get myself out of that mindset. Um, I'm just looking to, to drive ball. So. Yeah. And that was one of the big, big differences I saw in pro ball was guys besides plate discipline, like them not swinging at balls off the plate very much at all. And also just sometimes the willingness for them to take a called strike three that they knew they couldn't drive. Like I had a conversation with a guy after a game once where I rung, I got him rung up on a fastball that was probably two inches inside. Like it wasn't on the plate. And I felt a little guilty about it because it's like clearly a ball. And I saw him at the bar after the game. I'm like, Hey man, like, you know, I kind of like accidentally got you a little now. And he's like, nah, dude, I don't care. He's like, I'm, I'm like, I'm never swinging at that pitch no matter what. So if it strikes me out, so be it. He's like, but I can't, I can't hit that pitch. He's like, it was a good pitch striker ball. I'm not swinging. So if the umpire rings yeah. me up, whatever, which I thought was pretty smart. It was a good yeah. answer. Yeah. And we, and when we talk about that Northwestern too, with, with our hitters is like, when we get to two strikes, we, we can't be in swing mode, right? We almost need to, to shrink the zone a little bit. Right. So we talk about, what we're looking for in that time and what this pitcher is going to do to us. But, um, you know, at least, you know, in, in my head, right. Like kind of what you just said, Dan is go down looking at a borderline pitch or do you want to swing at a ball for strike three, you know, mm-hmm. so uh, a breaking ball in the dirt, like which one, right. <laughs> They're both strikeouts, but in your head, you can probably live with the borderline pitch that the umpire calls than the one that bounces 56 feet. Yeah, for sure. I think a very, underrated skill I saw a lot in pro ball was the ability to just swing to the pitch that you think you see as opposed to swinging at the ball. And Dan, this is probably something, I don't know if you've ever heard this or not, but no, I have guys talk about that with like little sinkers yeah. and cutters. Like yeah. they, have to, so, they know they have to get below it. Mm-hmm. So the one guy I saw that did it the best was Jake Fox. I mean, he was big leader mm-hmm. with a few teams. He coaches now. Um, kind of labeled as like an ambusher like always jumping on first pitch but it wasn't necessarily just fastball like he was looking for a first pitch and if he thought that he was getting it like he swung as if he got it so for example if you're looking first pitch curveball and you get a you look you see the pitch you think it's a curveball you swing to that pitch even though it might be a fastball and (laughs) if it is a fastball he doesn't try and make contact with that fastball he just swings right through it and it's better to be 0-1 than 0-for-1. And I, I say that a lot, and I don't know how much it resonates with, like, younger players. It does a little bit with, you know, the varsity and college baseball players that come around, like, in the cage. But I guess I never always... heard, heard of that referred to as, like, curveball versus fastball. I've heard it, guys talk about it versus, like, swinging at a high – like, I had a spin, high spin rate fastball, so guys would tell me they kind of had to, like, try to get above it and like swing above it. And I've heard that about sinkers, obviously, and cutters. But I'd never heard that about curveballs. So that's interesting. Well, like a, it's not necessarily curveball. Like, a, like a, a common one is if you think you see fastball and it ends up being changeup, and then you try and just extend the barrel out a little bit oh, further to make just, contact. Just swing out. Okay, that makes just sense. swing through that pitch. And chances are, I mean, Dan, you could talk to this. Like if you see a guy that just looks very early on one of your changeups, I would imagine you're – like I'm looking changeup again. I'm going to sit change up on the second pitch uh, just because he's already made me look foolish on the first one. And I look like I'm ambushing a fastball. So I'm going to sit change up. Like personally, that's it. That's the 
what I'm going to do on the next pitch. But yeah, the, the ability to just swing through that changeup as opposed to trying to like last second throw the barrel down and maybe make some weak contact is something you have to a little you learn a little bit. Yeah, you especially do. when it's an OO one oak like hitters counts where you're not it's not a you know contact or out situation. It's not a it's not a skill that's that's easily obtained and like it's it's hard to instill that it's okay to swing and miss first you know in yeah. some instances. Which goes back to what Dusty what you said, which is like stop trying to make weak contact with that curveball, like just either whiff through it or let it go. Which it's hard. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's hard. Bobby said it's 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 really hard. Some guys do it, and some guys it's they they can never break it. But it's it's a hard skill for sure. Yeah. Especially with, like you said, with guys that can do that, because I definitely have players that could just always make contact if they wanted. And I went to the batting cage with my family on, um, I guess, like two weekends ago for my dad's birthday, and we were all just, like, screwing around the batting cages. But I could hit every every pitch. That, those are one of those really old machines that's, like, <laughs> head hunting, and then it skips one off the ground. Like, they're all over the place. And I hadn't swung a bat in multiple years. But I could still make contact with every pitch no matter where it was. Like I could just like stick my butt out and like hit the one off the ground and the one over my head. But then after I do that for a little while, I'm like, I guess even then in the batting cage, I'm like, I gotta stop doing that. Like this is, it's like hurting me to like, just try to make content, just like, just let it go. And it's that same, same kind of thing. That's interesting. So what, what do you, so you talk briefly about if a guy's hitting like having success at the college level, hitting 350 or 380, that's a lot of success. I mean, is it okay? Like, you start to see guys in pro ball like Joey Gallo hit, like, you know, 089 with 39 home runs <laughs> in, you know, the, you know, by July. Is it changing in college baseball where, say, you have a guy who's hitting 290? Is that enough success to say, hey, let's hit 260 with 15 jacks? Or is it – where's the bar today? Do you see that changing in college baseball? Yeah, I think a little bit. You know, I think, uh, you know, the, the, the home run is – is a big part of the game, right? So you get a point. That, you get a point if you hit over the fence. Yeah, yeah at least right. one. At least one. At least one, right? Um, so I think you know, at least for us, right? We try to put guys into, you know, hey, this is what we think you need to do to be successful for our team and, and for your career, right? So if it is a guy who needs to add power, um, that's what we're going to work on, right? So I think like when it comes to us, like we're not we're not teaching, you know, our our big first baseman is not working on, you know, sack bunting for ten minutes. Um, at practice, right? He's 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 going to spend an extra ten minutes working on you know positive count, right? Drive the ball to the gap, um, type things. Where a guy who you know is not there yet from a physical uh, you know from a physical standpoint, he's going to work on sack bunting for ten minutes and drag bunting and doing those things. So I think, um, you know, kind of to answer your question, like I think you have to again have those conversations and you have to you know try to get guys to the next level, right? They want to play professional baseball, so. But I think each individual plan um, is going to be catered to what they need to do for them to be successful and for our team to win. So, I mean, I want to transition a little bit because you are at a, a premium academic institution. So Northwestern standards you get in Northwestern for a normal student are very high. Mm-hmm. So how does that, how does that inhibit or is it, is it any detriment to recruiting? Are you going after the player first and the academics second, or you, do you have to look at the academics first to even see if you can, uh, you know, recruit that player? You know, what's the approach when you're recruiting for a school that's got such high uh, academic standards? Yeah. Um, I think you have to, you have to cast a, a wide net, right. From coast to coast. So 
um, a lot of the work that, that we do is definitely on the front end. Um, so I, I think, you know, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense for us to go to a national event without any, you know, research and information and calling high school and travel coaches to so the kids who are going to be there who fit our mold, right? So if there's going to be, let's say, 100 kids at, at a national event, right, just throwing that number out there, um, there might be, we'll say, 10, right, who can get into Northwestern. So, you know, for us, like, we just want to work smart. So instead of going there with, with a, you know, with a naked eye and just, hey, I'm just going to see these kids, and I like 10 of them, but only one can get into school. Like that just doesn't make a lot of sense for us. So yeah. we, we, we try to go somewhere where there's going to be academic kids. So we do a lot of work on the front end of seeing who's going to be there and is an academic event, you know, are they interested and kind of, you know, if we, if we can reach out to them first and like, there is interest, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to bear down, lock in on this kid and see what he can do. So that's probably the one of the hardest parts about us recruiting because we can't just go to an event and sit there and I like that shortstop and he can't get into school. Right. So that's probably the biggest thing. And we just have to go coast to coast, right? We can't just stay in in Chicago, although there's really good players here. Um, We have to go coast to coast. So what is your standard in general? Like what, what says, okay, I can go look at him and it won't be a waste of my time. Um, From a, from like academics, like great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just in Um, general. yeah, you know, th- there's not just like a set number um, for us, right? The, the, they're going to work with us a little bit. Um, you know, I, I think if you're if you're in the in the high 20s with ACT score, you know, and, and your GPA is is over, you know, is, is right around three five. Like that's that's kind of what we're looking for. And you know, Bobby and I have, have talked about some of his players in the past and, and guys who who who've uh, fit that mold and yep. come close, but it's and who can't, right? Yeah, right. And it's tough, you know, and it's an expensive school too. So like there's another factor um, once you throw that in there. So, um, you know, once you hit all three, right, with from the financial piece, the academic piece, and obviously the baseball piece, um, you know, then then we're going to go after the kid uh, pretty aggressive. And where does upper 20s ACT, where does that translate into SAT score? Like a, like a mid 1200. So okay. 1280 is usually the, is usually the target, which that's like a 27. Um, ACT. So, gotcha. Yeah, good grades for sure. Those are really good grades. I mean, yeah, you're. That's good test. That's good test grades, and also your consistent GPA, like day to day grades with this with the high school. But mm-hmm. is there any is there any difference recruiting the your 21s and 22s right now? If you guys are still looking for those guys with potentially not having ACT SAT. Yeah, I mean it's it, it's been tough, right? It's just uh, and everyone's in the same boat here, but just not seeing kids in person, um, not having test scores. So it makes it a little bit more challenging, but I think we've, we've been at Northwestern now for five years. So, so we know kind of the mold and, and we can look at a transcript and see if this guy's trending in the right direction. Um, and then once you start talking to the kid and, and the family and the parents, and then the high school coach, travel coach, and they're all like, this is, they start to say the right keywords. Right. And, and, uh, we realize that he's, he's a, he's a target for us. Yeah. So if you're just tuning in, we're here with Dusty Napoleon, an assistant coach with Northwestern University uh, up in Chicago, also a former pro baseball player drafted by the Oakland Athletics. So if you have a question, um, shoot it over to us on Periscope or on YouTube. We're both checking. I'm always scrolling through the the YouTube one. Bobby monitors our, our Periscope. So, um, so back to recruiting a little bit. So I've heard there's a bunch of these sort of like high academic showcases. Are you a school that tends to frequent those? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you get, you get a lot of bang for your buck, right. For us when, mm-hmm. when we go there and 
there's hundreds of kids there. So it's, uh, it definitely helps us. Yeah. I've heard about, I heard about them, I guess a couple of years ago, they're, they seem like they're a pretty recent thing, but it makes sense. I mean, it's like you said, it's hard. I remember a couple, actually a long while ago, I sent out video of two, like my two best players at the time. One of them was like 84 to 87, like 5'10", 5'11", right-hander. He had like a 32 ACT and like a 4.0. And Rice called me about him. I'm like, what? What is happening? I'm like, but they're like, yeah, dude, it's just really hard to get people into our school. And we have one spot left and it's getting kind of down to the wire. And, mm-hmm. you know, we just can't get kids into our school. And he like, we like how that kid looks. Like he's got a, got some good stuff. Like, what do you think? And I think it's a, it's a weird situation where you can slip into a really great school potentially. Cause this kid ended up going D2 into like an engineering school and he was a you know good, very good pitcher, had a good college career, yeah. a great, super smart, good person. Um, but yeah, it's interesting that you can almost, you have your, your own set of unique choices when you're a really high yeah. academic kid where a lot of kids that like, they just can't possibly be in the conversation. Like you said, with you guys. Yeah, we've we've uh, we found in our five years too. Like w- once we once we get the kid into school, right? Like there's so much support here for the kid who, you know, um, that just from from tutors and academic services and having advisors that you know we don't we don't really have to worry about them, um, you know, handling their their schoolwork. Like they're they're going to get it done. They're they're very motivated kids, and so um, you know when they get to the baseball field, it's a uh, you know, it's an outlet for them, right. And, and to work and get better, but they're motivated off the field too. So, um, we really like getting those kids cause you don't have to worry about them, right. They're, they're going to handle mm-hmm. their business and, and show up ready to go. So when you're out recruiting, I mean, I've, I've had an unusual amount of run-ins with, with people have tournaments, just odd happenings at these, some of these tournaments. And I know this isn't a normal recruiting year for Division One, but mm-hmm. how much are you taking in the surroundings? Like, are you noticing only what's on the field? Are you taking a look at the dugout? Like, are you watching pre-inning? I try and stress to the kids, like, look, they're watching everything. You know, guys are only there for a set amount of time. They want to, they need to, they need to see you do something, regardless of whether the ball's hit to you, you get a hit. Um, are you watching everything pre-inning in the dugout? You know, what are you focused on as far as when you're when you're trying to identify kids? Yeah, man. I mean, I think you nailed it. It, it is everything from the time I show up. You know, I try to get there early so you can watch them play catch and how they interact with their teammates and, and talk to the coach, and then um, how they come on and off the field, how they handle failures. Right? I think that's a that's a big one. You know, how do they act when they strike out or if they're on the mound? Um, you know, how do you, how do you handle that? Uh, you know, umpire squeezing you, all those things. So I think all that stuff's super important, right? Um, you know, how are the parents in the stands? You know, like you, I we watch everything once we get there. So, um, that's definitely something I missed about this summer is, is getting out there and this experience and everything. And, and it's really, um, bearing down on a kid. Let's go through a couple. So one of the things that's funny, you know, you always get, people like people and, and I do this and Bobby's just sort of like bringing to life things to, Hey, don't do this. Cause it might get your kid crossed off the list. Like mm-hmm. there's a lot of uh, that being brought to light, I think on social media, on the web, whatever, which is a good thing. Cause a lot of parents just don't know. Uh, but then obviously at some point it gets like too, it goes too far. And then people are like, wait, 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 wait. Like you're not going to get, your kid's not going to get crossed off. If your parent like gives them a stick of gum, like, like, you know, after the game. So like, what, what are some things that you said you would say might get you crossed off a list 
as a parent, like a thing a parent could do that might get their kid crossed on the list. And what are some things that you're like, eh, probably shouldn't do this, but it's, it's not going to like deter me, but you should probably like maybe not do that. I mean, from a parent's perspective, just how are they, how are they interacting during the game? Right. Is the is the mom or dad behind home plate when someone's on the mound and they're yelling at the umpires or something like that. And, um, being vocal in a negative way, right? Like that's, that's probably one of the biggest things um, from a parent's perspective, but man, it's, it's, uh, I think you hear, you hear the worst end of, of what parents do, right? Like it's, it's, I've been to a lot of games and um, I don't see it that much. I really don't. Um, so it's, uh, but I would say just being negative in a vocal way is probably one of the biggest things. What about dugout interactions as a parent? So, parents like sneaking over and like having a conversation with their kid through the fence or handing them food or drinks during a game or like, what about any yeah. of that stuff? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I don't care about the, about the Gatorade, right? Like mm-hmm. <laughs> kid has to stay hydrated during the game. Has that was, that was one we brought up recently. Yeah. I know. I know. I saw it. And it's, you know, I think that stuff's silly, but, but like after and that bad and you, and kids going over and dad's by the fence, mom's by the fence and they're, they're talking to him about the swing. Like, I think that's just, I think it's just a, it's just a red flag, right? I don't think you just totally cross them off, but then I think it's a conversation, right? Um, it happens repeatedly. And now you start to talk to the travel coach, talk to the high school coach again, and then, and then talk to the kid about, you know, the relationship and um, to see what the dynamic is. So I, I don't think you, you necessarily cross them off the list when that stuff happens, but we're definitely aware of it when it does. Yeah. And that's a good point. I was hoping you would touch on that because the Gatorade was one that, so, so like my, my take is I actually told my, my family is this at our Academy. I said, look, I, I want you to just give your kids and I want them to be responsible for bringing everything they need into the dugout before mm-hmm. the game. So they're just like being a grown up about it. For sure. Now, if they run out and they need water, whatever, <laughs> like it's like, I'm not going to have my kid pass, you know, one of their kids pass out, but just like, look, this is the policy. Everyone get their stuff. So you don't need mom and dad to bring you stuff during the game. You yeah. can make it two hours. Right. But you're, yeah. like you said, it's it's not going to get someone crossed off the list to slip a Gatorade through the fence. Like we all get that. Yeah. Um, but you're right. I think the when you start to to notice this dad's always sneaking over there to talk to his son after a bat at bat. Yeah. Like you said, red. I think red flag is a great way to put it. And parents should just understand that that is kind of something like, all right, they're going to be a little suspect of you, and now they're going to dig deeper about, okay, yeah. what else does this dad do, or what else does this mom do? Is she a helicopter parent? Cause you don't want them in your stands at Northwestern essentially, you know, like right. if they're going to be a problem and a distraction. Yeah. See, I, I got lucky in high school because I, I played for my dad in, in high school. So if, if he didn't, if he didn't have Gatorade, then I was, I was just, Hey, I just had, I just had a fend for myself. So <laughs> um, hopefully my mom was there, but uh, yeah, I just think, you know, and, and I get your point to it too, right. You're trying to teach them to grow up and that mom and dad aren't going to be there in college. So I, I definitely understand that. And, um, I definitely think, you know, the, the quicker they can under the, the student athlete can understand that, that they have to start taking care of, them, of themselves and being responsible and, and doing those things. It's, uh, I think it's important. Yeah. yeah. And those are definitely tame examples of, of like parent child interaction, yeah. you know, Gatorade afterwards, but the more egregious ones. And I saw them a lot this past weekend where we had a parent litigate, was, litigate, uh, <laughs> That, that's a whole different story uh, when your parent is running it. I tweeted it out, but when your dad is running after the coach in the parking lot 
threatening litigation. It's yeah. that's a that's Not what we call us a, a red flag. Yeah. But I saw a parent, uh, one of our kids actually, you know, pitching. He's throwing. He's throwing fine. Like he's you know a little wild, but nothing outrageous. And his dad is though is very loud and boisterous behind home plate. Whether it's fixture mechanics or mm-hmm. let's go blue, or it it was too much to the point where it was. It was just annoying as a, as a guy who was coaching the team. Like it's annoying. Just let the just quiet. Only when there's a result, say something. When there's no result, like you don't need to talk after every single pitch. So it was yeah. annoying to me. But I could I could see some of the there were some junior college coaches at the game, and you could just I could you could feel like the annoyance of this guy just needs yeah. to stop. Like it's it's too much already. And I, I actually, I, I pulled him aside after the game. I'm like, you cannot, you can't do this. Like, you're not helping your son at all. Whether it's nobody's, no, if there's no coaches there, you're still not helping him because all he's doing is listening to you. Like, he only hears you. And he needs yeah. to hear myself yeah. or somebody else because it's just, it's falling on deaf ears out for him. Yeah. Yeah, but you, you were in the dugout yelling at him just to, hey, throw strikes, weren't you? <laughs> I, so more, more so. Figure it out. Let's go. Yeah. This, this game, this game's been three hours already. Yeah. I'm but sure you like that it, band when, 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 when coaches would yell at you to throw strikes. It's like, oh, the light. Yeah, the, that's when the light bulb really goes off. Yeah, for sure. Oh, that's my job. Got it. <laughs> yeah, it's frustrating. I mean, I think it all always comes from a place of like a concern, like in a good way. Like they want you to do well. It's just I think a lot of them just aren't aware. And no one wants to correct them. It's such a hard thing to like correct a person, uh, like another adult's behavior. Like if you're one dad, are you going to tell some your the guy next to you like, "Hey, dude, you're being a, a huge dick. Like, stop yeah. it. You're hurt. You're hurting your kid." Like, I don't think anyone wants to have those yeah. conversations. They're hard conversations to have. I mean, I'm, I'm, we were at uh, Indianapolis last year at, at a bullpen tournament, and between games, a blooper dropped, like kind of in no man's land on on his own, different the field adjacent to us on the you know the big clover. And uh, one of the dads who was like standing there watching just freaks out and he just screams. It's like so loud that the entire complex stopped. He's like, God, you know, just screams, mm-hmm. God damn it. And that ball can't drop. Blah, just like a drill is so loud. And I was just like, good grief. And then everyone was just awkwardly quiet for a while. And then he just like went back to standing next to the other two dads and like watching the game. I'm like, what do people think right now? Like, who are those other two dads next to him? Like just picking up the conversation where it left off after you just absolutely reamed out your own son and embarrassed everyone on the field and yeah. made a scene just like, Hey, who's going to win the football game this Sunday? It's like, well, where do you go from there? From there? It was just, it was just bizarre. Um, but like yeah. someone needs to correct that man, wherever he is. Maybe he's in jail by now. I don't know, but you, you know, you see stuff like it's that. It's, it's crazy. It's not an easy conversation. It's not. Answer. It's really hard. But like whoever, ever, anyone who was around took note of that dad. It's like, okay, who's that kid? That guy's son. <laughs> That's definitely. Yeah. He's not on my list anymore. Well, do you guys do you guys talk to talk to your parents like before the season or when they join your programs about mm-hmm. how to how to interact and and all, all those things? Yeah, and a lot of it's unfortunately a lot of it festers because you try to be a good communicator and I know at the college level you guys, it's so much better for you because you don't need to tell parents why that you're, 
you know, their kid isn't starting at second base anymore. But at the younger levels, you know, like a parent might be watching the game and their son's playing second base the whole game. Then you take him out in the sixth and they don't know why they don't realize that you're taking him out because you might need him to come in relief if the game gets to a certain point in the seventh or whatever. But they just saw that he got yanked and a lesser kid gets put in. And then that goes in the memory bank. And then a month later, they've got a little list. They've been sort of like carrying like, oh, well, you may, you did this on this day. You did this, this, this. And it festers. And then you're like, why don't you just ask me about it? I had a good reason for doing everything I did. And, and sometimes I screw up. But like, and then that's when things get explosive sometimes or you have to have a sit down. And, and it's like this really contentious conversation where it's like, no, 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 no. Those were all things that I did for legitimate coaching reasons, not because I was trying to screw your son over. Right. And it's hard because you can't, you can't tell them everything you're doing. Like you just can't, right? And they don't need to know everything you're doing. And the kids don't need to know everything you're doing. But it's just, uh, it's just a different climate. But I know that barrier is broken in college too, isn't it? Sometimes don't you guys sometimes get emails from, from parents and stuff or, or not so much your program? Yeah, I mean, no, I, I think, you know, with how early the recruiting process has started, right? When we start recruiting kids as sophomores, like by the time they get to us, like we've, we've had, have had multiple conversations with the parents and the family and, and they've been around the program, right? Just on visits, unofficial, official visits. So I think they, they understand the, the culture that we have. Um, doesn't mean that, that it doesn't happen, right? I, mm -hmm. I know Coach Allen deals with it every once in a while, but I think um, once you get to college, maybe it's handled on a, on a different level, um, you know, but uh, it's, I think, I think it's going to happen, right? Um, shoot, I was just listening to something the other day where they were saying it was, it was happening in, in pro ball a little bit too. So, I, um, and, 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 and hey, being, being a, a dad of two kids, like I, I, I do understand it a little bit more now, right? Just, and, and they're young, but uh, it's because you, you want the best for them, right? And you want to protect mm -hmm. them and, um, but there's certain way to, to handle those, those, those tough issues or, or just communicate with somebody. Yeah. Yeah. I, Bobby and I were talking about, um, this book that I just finished called the coddling of the American mind, which I highly suggest you read it as well. Any, mm -hmm. anyone who's working with kids or as a parent, I think should read that book. It's, mm -hmm. it's disturbing. Some of the <laughs> things that are just in the, in the cancel culture, the way kids, they get into tribes and only want you know, if you don't agree with my, my opinion, then you're in this other tribe and I hate you and I hate your opinion. I don't want to listen to your, mm -hmm. your opinion. You can't come speak on my college campus about it. It's, there's a lot of stuff that's, it's crazy. And there's the way that kids are brought up, you know, it talks about crime rates from back in the sixties when kids could just go roam around, you know, like, Oh, I'll see you. You're going to go hang out in the woods or run down the street to your friends. I'm like, okay, just be home before dark. Like that doesn't happen anymore. It's a really interesting, just like book about how kids are raised and, whether we're tough or mentally soft nowadays. And if so, why, what are the factors behind it? Um, but you're right that, I mean, like my college coach, well, what is it? 12 years ago now or something like that. No, 16 years ago when I came in, he was like, look, it's very clear. Your mom and dad never contact me about playing time ever. You come to me, you're a man. Now you're in college. Mm -hmm. That's how it is. They contact me. It's not going to be good for you. I don't know that anyone's parents ever contacted my coach and he wasn't a scary. He's a super friendly, like a really good person, but yeah. that was just like what it was. But I think between then and now that, that barrier has been slowly chipped away where it's still mostly good. I'm sure it's like you very get, I'm sure you yeah. get very infrequent, but everyone hears about the negative stuff when it happens, yeah. you know, like the, this parent did that, like Bobby getting litigation <laughs> or whatever, you know, those are the stories, <laughs> but most parents are good still. So, yeah. 
Well, how else have you seen college baseball change? Because, I mean, I'm 34, you're 34, Bobby, you're 33, right? 33. I mean, Dusty, what are some of the ways that you've seen the college game change since you were there and then you've been coaching yeah. long enough to see it evolve a lot? What are fill, fill us in here. Well, at least in the Big Ten, right? Like when, when I played in the Big Ten 2005 to 2007, there was a one-bid league, right? So maybe two. Um, now, Big Ten, we're getting five teams a year in the NCAA. So for, for starters, the, the investment in facilities across the country has just been huge. Um, you know, uh, it just – schools want to win, so they've really invested in facilities. And then I, I think just the, just the talent – Right. I think people are um, just with the uh, better access in recruiting and, and social media and emails, like all that stuff. Like I remember sending out VHS tapes to, to schools right when I was trying to get recruited. And um, so it was, it was more like a regional um, recruitment at the time. Now it's like, you know, we're, we have eight or nine kids from California and we're getting out there to see them. And and it's just I think it's, it's easier that way. So I think there's the talent in the Big Ten is so much better. Um, you know, there's, there's high draft picks. So, um, just top to bottom in, in our league, right. There's, there's 13 baseball schools and, and every year it's a battle to finish in the top eight to make the big 10 tournament. So just the talent, uh, at least in the big 10 has really, really increased over the last, you know, 12, 13 years. And what about just the game in general? Like you, you mentioned briefly that you guys use all the, the fancy tools and mm-hmm. you're using data analytics. Um, how has that changed the game? Yeah, I just think, you know, once the right the launch angle era kind of started a couple of years ago, um I know, I know, yeah, I don't I don't like the term either. Um but uh you know, I, I just think I think people um really started to become their own coach, right? So they started to dive in. There's so much videos out there. Um and you know, I think it's it's our job as coaches, right? Like we we all coach these kids is to make them understand what they're, what they're trying to do and have them understand. And, um, you know, just some of the body assessment stuff that we've done. And, and, you know, we have some kids, you know, uh, use an example, someone on our team wanted to, I told him to come up with his MLB comp and, and, you know, it was Cody Bellinger. Well, I was like, I love it, man. Like I want that aggressiveness, but like, you don't move like Cody Bellinger. Like, so we have a, like honest conversation. Like he was more of a, like a tight mover. Right. So, um, and we had all those tools to help him with and, and show him, like, understand it. Like, hey, here's Cody Bellinger's numbers from, like, a, a body assessment stuff and all those things. And, like, here's where you're at, right? So it's just, like, we're not going to – I'm not going to teach you to hit like him because it just doesn't make sense from a body standpoint. So yeah. I think, like, having those kids, like, our, our guys buy into those things have has really, really helped. And over the last year and a half, two years, um, I've had to educate myself a ton on understanding – um, what I'm trying to teach and put out there because I think it's always changing. Um, it's always evolving into um, the next thing, but it's also like you start to add pieces together and come up with um, the best way to coach kids. If I was a, if I was a parent of a 15 year old and I walked up to you and I said, Hey, I have $300 to spend this year on some sort of technology tool for my son. And he's a hitter. Mm. What, what would you recommend coach? Man. Um, or it, could be nothing. Or, or it could be save that money yeah. and buy, buy him, you know, whey protein. Get those. Yeah, right. right know, the whey protein. Yeah. No, I mean, 15 years old, like, you know, I think that's Do they need probably, it? Yeah. Yeah, it's probably at the age where you need to start at least understanding, um, 
your swing at least a little bit. Um, but at, at the same time, like you're going to make a huge jump from a physicality standpoint from 15 to 18 too. So um, I think the technology is important. I don't know if I would say there's one thing out there just to like, Hey, you absolutely need this at 15 years old. Um, for me, I would say, Hey, go play some, some stickball games in the backyard with with your boys and, and go have fun, go play wiffle ball and come up with, uh, you know, different stances, go hit like Griffey for an at back, go hit, like, you know, like that. And that's what we used to do. Right. Like mm-hmm. growing yeah. up and, and, uh, like that, that was fun. Right. And you just start to like feel your body move and have fun playing. And I, I just, you just, I feel like you just don't see it anymore just yeah. driving around, but, um, literally like, Griffey, he was the man. Yeah, everyone, like, everyone literally like Griffey, Griffey, right? Yeah. yeah, he's yeah. So awesome. Yeah. Well, I'll, take it him. I'll go a different direction. Like, What's the best piece of, uh, I guess, equipment that you guys use or that you have all the technology? What's the one that you like using the most that you find the most benefit in? Yeah, we really we really dove in, I think, this past year to, to two main pieces with Blast Motion, um, with the bat sensor, um, and then the K-Vest, right? So the K-Motion technology. So I think pairing those two together, um, and we have a full at Northwestern, right? We have a full, you know, um, analytical team to help us with it, but um, you know, just, I think those two pieces pairing them together and understanding the swing and then, you know, kind of going back to what we talked about to start like swing coach, approach coach, right. Or, or hitting coach. It's like, once their swing is grouped up and it's like good to go, they're sequenced properly. They're gaining enough, you know, force. It's like, okay, now let's really start to dive into how we're going to handle, you know, 92 sinking in on your hand. So, um, those two pieces have really helped us over the last year and a half. Gotcha. Yeah. And for those who don't know much about KVS, cause that's the one that's pretty expensive. It's probably not something yeah. anyone's going to buy for themselves. Can you just explain yeah. a little bit about what it is and what it does? Yeah. So you have, you have four different sensors um, on your body, um, on your upper body. And basically it's uh, you, you end up, you, you set it up, it works better indoors. And um, it's just kind of going through the, 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 the biomechanics of the swing. Right. So um, making sure that, that your sequence right. And then, you know, going through the, the, the different forces. So it, it is expensive. Um, I know a bunch of colleges have jumped on board, you know, every MLB team, um, has it. Um, I know some, some academies are starting, are starting to jump on board with that, but the blast motion sensor is, is definitely a cheaper version or uh, it does different things, but it's a cheaper product. Um, it does great things though. Like it, it's, it's really, really good. It's useful. Um, we use that, um, couple times a week especially in the fall and we incorporated it into our season this past year and then you know really with the, with the k vest is probably more of a, a monthly um thing for us just to make sure guys are on track just because like a, a tougher setup you got to do it indoors yeah. it's just a lot more involved yeah 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 it comes up with, with graphs and charts and um still like learning more about those and and uh mm-hmm. you know how to help our guys but uh it's good. You know, it's, it's fun. And, and that's where, you know, being a, being a college coach, sometimes I'm staring at a screen for, for hours. Um, and then I got to take a step back and be like, all right, tomorrow we're just going to compete and, you know, mm-hmm. let these guys uh, swing it and, and have fun. And then the next day we'll, we'll, we'll go back into the technology piece and develop them. Well, do you feel like that? Um, and Bobby, feel free to jump in if you have something burning. And I have one uh, listener question from YouTube on, on pitching that I, I do want to ask, but do you feel like this, some of the technology, like you said, you have to, I like what you just said, where maybe we'll do all the technology stuff today, then tomorrow just go compete. Do yeah. you feel like that makes it tough for kids to stay present? Because I, I got a call from one of my kids in, in central Illinois recently, and he's like, hey, 
how do you like, he's like stuff I've been working on in practice isn't translating to the field. I go out there and basically I was like, you just got to go out there and have fun. And I'm mm-hmm. like, well, look, I know you've heard that a million times in your life. Here's what that means. At some point you have to go out on the mound or in the box, turn all that nonsense off. What you did in practice it either sticks or it doesn't. And you got to go out there and just compete and get lost right. in the mitt, get lost in the pitch, just like get lost in baseball. So do you feel like some of the technology stuff, do you feel like it hurts kids' ability to be present and to compete like that sometimes? Are they too worried about their attack yeah. angle and all that stuff? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think we, we, we really, you really have to educate the kids on, on what you're trying to accomplish. Right. So when we have, you know, hack attack fastball set up to, to 94, the top of the zone and they, and they have no technology on them. It's like, fellas, we are competing right now. Like this is what we're doing. And then the next drill, right. They go inside to the cage might be KVS set up. And it's like, guys, we're, we're going to work on some mechanic stuff. So I think just, um, and with the nature of, of the kid today is just, you have to explain everything to them. So we, we, we tell them like, Hey guys, this is a drill to compete in. Like you have to throw everything out the window from what you just worked on, maybe in the last station and we're just going to compete. Or it's like, guys, we're breaking it down. We're going to do some, you know, top hand stuff. We're going to work on lower half. We're going to put core velocity on, right. And just like work on mechanics. So, we really try to explain the drill to the kids and, and have them understand what they're trying to accomplish before we get started. Gotcha. It's definitely, wow. it's definitely a lot of, a lot of information for kids. Like mm-hmm. it, when you're trying to simplify and get one point across, maybe not necessarily for kids at 18 to 22, cause they, they're mature baseball players uh, in that sense. But if you've got a young kid and he's constantly looking at the hit tracks, like, Mm-hmm. head whipping around see how far he hits the ball and it's really like i don't care what the what this computer screen says you hit the ball 50 mm-hmm. feet the cage is 50 feet long you hit the ball 50 feet like we can tell if you hit it <laughs> on the screws or not mm-hmm. um it's like information overload to where they they want their exit lot like they're it's a consistent uh attempt to improve that maybe the exit velocity number or kvs number or whatever whatever they're measuring mm-hmm. and like a disconnect from okay well the guy out there is actually trying to get you out he's not just going to serve up one and see how well your metrics measure against his his normal fastball like he's going to try and locate it he's going to try and get you off balance like how do you compete in the moment regardless of what the numbers might dictate uh about your swing or your swing efficiency or your quickness of the ball Mm -hmm. so it's hard to it's hard to separate for younger guys especially because technology is cool. They grew up on technology. I mean, they, they essentially mm-hmm. were born with iPads in their hands. So to see something in real time, you know, whether it's data or, uh, you know, ball flight, whatever it is, that is like that resonates with them. So you have to, you have to kind of use it to keep them interested, but at the same time kind of teach them like, okay, this is like the grassroots part of baseball. Like you need to be a good competitor. You need to actually try and beat the other guy not just beat the computer screen that you're looking at. Yeah. So Dusty, I got two, two pitching questions from YouTube. Um, one, I know the answer to, but I'll ask it first. Uh, if two kids are throwing the same speed and one kid's six, five and the other one's five, nine, which one do you like better? Does the height matter? The one, the one who throws more strikes. <laughs> oh, okay. Hey, there we go. Or, or, or with, or with the better, better breaking ball. But yeah, I mean, heights, right. I, you know, you can project heights, but there's, there's five, nine, big league pitchers who've had good careers too. So, yeah. But if all things are equal, if they're literally just 
two of the same human, but one's tall, one's short. Yeah, I mean, if, if everything if everything is the same, I mean, I think you you'll go with the with the taller guy. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Uh, and then actually, this is basically the same question. Um, all things being equal, grades, attitude, size, etc. When you see a quality lefty versus righty, are you more interested in the lefty? Has that changed over time? Where what are you with that with handedness? Yeah, uh, I think it's going to go down to what your team needs, right? What you have on the roster when you start to build staff. But, um, you know, definitely left-handed pitching wins, right, in, in, in all levels of baseball. Um, just because you don't see a lot of it growing up, right? So once you get to the high school level, college level, and you have a dominant lefty, like those guys usually win. So um, and being a left-handed hitter growing up, I didn't like facing them. So mm-hmm. I think, I think <laughs> lefties uh, usually, you know, have a faster track to the big leagues if you are a, a dominant lefty. Um, but again, right. It's, cool. it's going to go down to all the other stuff with the command and strike throws and all those. Yeah. Well, even in the big leagues, it's, isn't it like, I do think just 20% of pitchers are left-handed. So yeah. as a big leaguer, if you've gotten 10,000 at bats, that's a lot of at bats. If you've gotten, if you've gotten a thousand at bats in the big leagues, they still don't really know how good you are off lefties for a yeah. good amount longer because your sample size you have a thousand at bats in the big leagues, which is a lot. It's two full seasons. You only have two hundred at bats against lefties. Two hundred at bats is a small sample size for a big league where they can't really say definitively whether you're actually like struggling against lefties or really good against lefties. That's just like something for perspective that I read in uh, I think one of Tom Tango's books. But but you're right. I mean, hitters they face them so f- infrequently. Mm-hmm. They just like don't have the the book of, like of they've seen as many pitches yeah. and they're just not as good at it. So that makes sense. What, what percentage of your staff is left-handed? So I think and we have about, I think this next year, I think we have 17 arms and I think we have six left-handers. That's pretty good. So five, you think that, is that about standard for the big 10? Yeah. I, yeah. It's probably right around there. Um, usually you're going to get one starter on the weekend, maybe sometimes two. Um, we've had two in, in the couple of years uh, we've been here, but usually one for sure. And then, you know, uh, one kind of main guy out of the bullpen. Um, and if you're lucky, you get, you kind of have two of those guys, but, uh, probably, you know, you, you usable guys who are pitching a ton. There's probably four to five on a good, a good team. And how many usable guys who are pitching a ton make, what percentage of that is your total staff? So you have 17 arms. That was a weird way of wording, wording it. Out of the 17, how many of your of those pitchers are usable, getting a lot of innings kind of pitchers on a given yeah. year? Oh, Josh Reynolds, our pitching coach, he'll talk about, you know, it's, it's usually eight and possibly 10 guys on a weekend, right? So it's usually top eight arms. That's, that's what he always preaches. You need to be in the top eight if you want to pitch on the weekend. Um, and then when he, I mean, when he says 10, it's usually like the midweek starter with a piggyback guy and then use bullpen. So usually – you know, uh, it's, it's 10 or 11 guys, but on a weekend, you try to keep it around eight with your three starters, you know, and, and some bullpen guys. So, you know, for us, at least the way coach Reynolds talks about it, it's, it's top eight arms that, that that's what those guys are, are trying to get to. That's good. That's, and that's good. I think for those of you listening to hear, because I think as too few <laughs> players and parents realize I've committed to blank college, doesn't mean you're going to see the field. Mm-hmm. And out of 17 pitchers, nine of them, are potentially not getting many innings at all. And they're certainly not entitled to anything. Like they got to earn it. So I think that's important yeah. for people to, to understand. And you've got just as many position players, right? You have more than a whole team sits on the bench too. So, yeah, yeah. That's what we've got about 15 position guys. And, you know, we're, we're probably looking at playing about a, a 
11 of them, you know, on, on a given year, you know, so. Yeah. And that's a striking number. If you're, a, if you're sitting there thinking like, Oh, I'm going to division one or I commit, I'm, I want to commit division one. Well, it's not, if you're commit division one and you're the, you know, the last guy off the bench, what, what good is it for you and how well, how much are you going to enjoy your college experience? I mean, it's, everybody loves the glory of division one and it's, it's the harsh reality is, yeah, you were probably a starter your whole life. Well, now it just got that much harder. Everybody mm-hmm. on the team the is, funnel. Is, is you, yeah. everybody on the team is you. Yeah. So how do you separate yourself? How do you get into that? Like you, like you said, there's probably 11 guys that play throughout the course of the year mm-hmm. and catcher is two of them. Definitely. Yeah. Yep. You've always got a backup catcher. So there's essentially what eight, seven spots and you've got nine guys that are, that are going to play like your starting shortstop. I imagine is going to be a 56 game starter. Your starting center mm-hmm. fielder is going to be a mm-hmm. 56 game starter. Like they're not, it's not tournament style, you know, 16 new baseball where, Oh, maybe we'll get he'll get three or four games. No, he's going to yeah. start the, every game of every conference series. Yeah. Yeah. If we're trying to win games. Yeah. And, and that would be, you know, I, I know we, we talked about it a little bit, but that'd be my biggest advice to, to high school kids is don't just, you know, set on, you know, one school. This is where I want to go. Or, um, you know, I, I coached, you know, one of my best years of, uh, of baseball was coaching my one year at, at Concordia, Chicago, Division three school. And there were Division one players on that team, right? Like they, they, we went to World Series and um, really, really good players. They were Division one guys, like, but if they're on the Division One roster, are they are they getting 150 at bats that year? Like I, I don't know. You know, are they getting, you know, 10 starts on the season? Like I, probably not, right? right? But they went to Division Three and made it to a couple of World Series and had really good careers and All Americans. And it's like, go somewhere that 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 you're gonna play. Like that'd be my biggest advice. Like, go somewhere that you want to play and and you know definitely like have goal schools, have target schools, but. Um, you know, also also have some other other ideas and keep all levels open because Division three baseball is really good. Junior college baseball is really good. Um, so that'd be my biggest advice to kids is don't just narrow in on Division one. Like there's other options and and you want to go play baseball, right? Not just not just sit. Well, before we wrap up here and I uh, give you a chance to to pitch your school and where people can find you and all that stuff. But mm-hmm. my last question, piggybacking all that, is if Coach Napoleon comes and recruits me how do I know I'm going to play? Like, how do I know I'm going to play your school? Like, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, there's no guarantees, right? There's, uh, I, I talk to kids all the time and you know, we, we never guarantee playing time. That's something you can't guarantee. Um, but you know, for us, right. Like we, we, uh, pitching, pitching Northwestern here a, a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. we deal with, we deal with uh, four year scholarships. Okay. Where a lot of schools in the country the year to year. So when you sign your NLI, um, you're locking yourself into to four years, right? So th- that money's not going to go away if you have a bad year or, or, or something happens. So, um, you know, we're in it for the long haul with guys, right? So it takes us a little bit longer to recruit you. Um, and then, you know, with, with, with our ros- roster size, you know, we're going to stay right, right around 30, 31. This next year will be a little bit different with some seniors coming back. Um, so, you know, there is, you know, we have we had 12 position players on our team last year <laughs> at Northwestern, right? So everybody was getting at, at bats. Um, this next year we'll have about 15 or 16, right? But uh, there's other schools who carry more. So, you know, your options to, to, to play, right? Um, we travel 27 with a 30-man roster. You want to go on those trips, right? So, yeah. um, and, at, and, at, and at Northwestern, right, it's, you get the best of both worlds. You get a top 10 education and you get to play in a Power 5 conference, 
um, in the best city in the world in Chicago. And do you guys give them, uh, do you guys give them like their own, uh, rubber boots? Do you give like, you know, outfit them to live in Chicago in the, in the winters? Nah, man. Western galoshes? No, no, we, 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 we get them there in the summer where it's a Canada goose and Northwestern jackets. (laughs) We do, we do, we do give them warm gear for sure. For sure. That's awesome. Well, how can people follow up with you? Um, get in touch with you, reach out to your school. What, what do you got for us? Yeah, my, my, my email will be on uh, nusports.com and then you can follow me on, on Twitter or Instagram at, at DeanApso3 and welcome any questions. Uh, DMs are open and uh, happy to happy to interact with, with anyone. Yeah, appreciate you uh, being on the show. It was an awesome conversation. Really, uh, I think we covered a lot of really good topics and jumped around a bit, but we really appreciate your, so your insight. I've, yeah. got, I've got so much catching Twitter stuff I have to talk oh, about. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, well, we can, we can always do it. We can always yeah, do we it again. Yeah, I appreciate it, guys. Uh, you guys are doing a good job. You know, I just keep up the good work. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Well, good luck um, this upcoming season, and when you guys get back to the hopefully in person recruiting trail. Sure. Um, man, it's been such a weird year, but like I said, yeah, appreciate you being on the show. So if you're out there listening, thanks again for uh, being on, the, on being here on the morning brushback for Bobby, uh, Dusty, and myself. Um, we'll see you here on Tuesday and be sure to follow up with him at uh, nusports.com and follow him on uh, Twitter at dnaps03, right? I got it. Got yep, it again. Yep. Boom. Cool. All right. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next time.